Good morning, everyone. I hope everybody had a good week. Let's get started. So a quick review of Chapter 7. Um, we come with a huge surprise at the start when uh, we find out that uh, Stangerson has been found dead, the secretary of Dreber. And the word rock or rush was written on, above the body, which means revenge. And Sherlock Holmes guessed that right away. Um, there was a note found on his body saying J.H. is in Europe. And we know who that is now. There were two pills found. One was poisonous, one was not. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is why one pill would be a placebo and one would not be a placebo. There has to be a reason for that. Um, Holmes knew who the murderer was. He didn't say anything because he didn't want to jeopardize the case, basically. And then with the... Uh, with Wiggins and his little pals there that Holmes hired to look out for him on the street, they get the cab driver up in the apartment and this is the, uh, come to find out he's the murderer of the two, two gentlemen. So now we know who the mysterious cab driver is from the beginning of the book. And his name is Jefferson Hope. And he is pegged as the hitman, if you want to, if we can use that. So before we delve into chapter 8, there's a couple things that we have to ask ourselves. One, who is Jefferson Hope? Two, who sent him? And who is seeking revenge on Weber and Standerson? We know it's not just for hope because he just, uh, as far as we know, he's just a tool implemented in this whole process here. And who is the mysterious women, woman that the wedding ring is intended for? A lot of the story was based around that wedding ring. And we still have no idea where that comes into play yet. Now, I'm looking at a couple of paragraphs ahead in chapter 8. It definitely takes a, a twist. Because we're going to be going uh, out of London, and as I say, across the pond to the Midwestern United States. So let's start. Um, one thing I'm going to say first is the... I'll read the first paragraph, and then i make another comment on something that I've noticed as we go along here, okay? So chapter 8 is titled, On the Great Alkali Plain. In the central portion of the great North American continent, there lies an arid, repulsive desert, which for many long years served as a barrier against the advance of civilization. From the Sierra Nevada to Nebraska, from the Yellowstone River in the north to the Colorado upon the south, is a region of desolation and silence. Nor is nature always in one good mood throughout this grim district. It comprises of snow-capped and lofty mountains and dark and gloomy valleys. There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged canyons. There are enormous plains which in winter are white with snow and in summer are gray with the saline alkaline dust. They're all preserved, however, the common char characteristics of barrenness, inhospitality, and this plain misery. Okay, so 
As you know, in the first uh, seven chapters, the book was narrated by Dr. Watson. Now we have a new narrator coming in the, in the, in the mix. And I'm going to keep reading along until we can get a clue on who the narrator is. I think I, I have a fairly good idea who it is. But let's see if we can just kind of figure this out together. So right now our goal is to assume that we have a third narr or second narrator and we're not sure who the narrator is yet. But we will find out. There are no inhabitants in this land of despair. A band of pawnists or black feet may occasionally travel in order to reach other hunting grounds. But the hardest of the braves are glad to see, glad to lose sight of those awesome plains and find themselves once more upon their prairies. The coyote skulks among the scrub, the buzzards flap heavily through the air, and the clumsy grizzly bear lumbers through the dark ravines and picks up sustenance as it can among the rocks. There are soul dwellers in the, they, these are the soul dwellers in the wilderness. Pretty barren place. In the whole world can be no more dreary view than that from the northern slope of Sierra Blanca. As far as the eye can reach stretches the great flat plain land, all dusted over with patches of alkali and intersected by clumps in the dwarfish chaparral bushes. Almost sounds like the uh, good old tumbleweeds there. On the extreme verge of the horizon lie a long chain of mountain peaks with their rugged summits flecked with snow. In this great stretch of country is no sign of life, nor of anything appertaining to life. There is no bird in the steel blue heaven, no movement upon the dull gray earth. Above all, there is absolute silence. Listen as one may, there is no shadow of a sound in all that mighty wilderness. Nothing but silence, complete and heart-subduing silence. That's got to be maddening. It has been said that there is nothing pertaining to the life upon a broad plain, but that is hardly true. Looking down from the Sierra Blanca, one sees a pathway traced out across the desert, which winds its way winds away in the lost extreme distance. It is rutted with wheels of trodden down by feet of many adventurers. Here and there are scattered white objects which glisten in the sun and stand out against the dull deposit of the alkali. Approach them and examine them. You quickly find out these are bones. Some large and coarse, others small and more delicate. The former have belonged to oxen, the latter to men. For 500 miles, one may trace this ghastly caravan route by these scattered remains of those who had fallen by the wayside. So many travelers went down that road and many travelers died. Looking down this very scene, there stood upon the 4th May of 1847, a solitary traveler. His appearance was such that he might have been the very genius or demon of the region. An observer would have found it difficult to say whether he was near to 40 or to 60. His face was lean and haggard and brown parchment-like skin was drawn tightly over their projected bones. His long brown hair and beard were all flecked with dashed with white. His eyes were sunk in his head and burned with unnatural luster. While the hand which grasped his rifle was hardly more fleshy than that of the skeleton. As he stood, he leaned upon his weapon for support, and yet his tall figure and the massive framework of his bones suggested a wiry, vigorous constitution. His gaunt face, however, and his clothes, which hung so baggily over shriveled limbs, proclaimed what it was that it gave him the, that senile, decrepit appearance. The man was literally dying. 
from hunger and thirst. I guess living in the, that part of the region of the country back then was no, no treat. He had toiled painfully down the ravine onto this little elevation, in vain hope of seeing more signs of water. Now the great salt plain stretched before his eyes, and in a distant belt of savage mountains without a sign of anywhere of a plant or a tree, which might indicate the presence of moisture. In all that broad landscape there was no gleam of hope. North, east, and west he looked with wild, questioning eyes and realized that his wanderings had come to an end, and that there, on that barren crag, he was about to die. Why not here, as well as a feather bed twenty years hence, he muttered to himself as he seated himself in the shelter of a boulder. Before sitting down, he had deposited upon the ground his useless rifle and a large bundle tied up in a gray shawl, which he carried along slung over his right shoulder. It appeared to be somewhat too heavy for his strength for, and lowering it, it came down to the ground with some, some little violence, like a little crash. Instantly there broke from the gray parcel a little moaning cry, and from it there protruded a small, scared face with bright brown eyes and two little speckled, dimpled fists. You hurt me, said the child, his voice reproachably. Have I, though, the man answered pensively. I didn't go that, I didn't go for it to do it. In other words, I didn't do it on purpose, I'm sorry. As he spoke, he unwrapped the gray shawl and extricated the pretty little girl about five years of age, whose dainty shoes and smart pink frock with its little linen apron all bespoke of a mother's care. The child was pale and wan, but her healthy arms and legs showed that she had suffered less than her companion. How is it now, he asked, actually, for she was still rubbing the toozy golden curls which covered the back of her head. Kiss it and make it well, she said, with the perfect gravity showing the injured part up to him. That's what mother used to do. Where's mother? Mother's gone. I guess you'll see her before long. Gone, eh, said the little girl. Funny, she didn't say goodbye. She most always did it when she was going over to auntie's for tea. Now she's been away for three days. Say, it's awful dry, ain't it? Ain't there no water or nothing to eat around here? No, there ain't nothing, dearie. You'll just need to be patient a while, and you'll be all right. Put your head up again, me, like that, and you'll feel better. It ain't easy to talk when your lips is like leather, but I guess I'd best let you know how the cards lie. What's that you got? Pretty things, fine things, the little girl, enthusiastic, holding up two glittering fragments of, mi of mica. When we go back home, I'll get into Brother Bob. You'll see pretty things. You will see prettier things than them soon. Just let me stop there for a second. It's hard to. I find the sets and structures in these books are kind of not what I'm used to. It's, you know, the language is a little bit different. But so please bear with me when I have these little bumps here and there. You'll see prettier things than them soon. So she has two little fragments of. Micah, which is, I think, sand or something. And uh, he's telling the little girl, you just wait and see. You'll see a lot more prettier stuff than that. I was going to tell you, though, you remember when we left the river. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, we reckon we strike another river soon. Did you see? But there's something wrong. Compasses or map or something. It didn't turn up. Water ran out. Just ex 
expect a little drop for the likes of you and I. And you couldn't wash yourself, interrupted his companion, gravely staring up at his, his, at his grimy visage. No, nor drink. And Mr. Bender, he was the first to go. Then the Indian Pete, and then Mrs. McGregor, and then Johnny Holmes, and then, dearie, your poor mother. Then mother's a debtor too, cried the little girl, dropping her face in her pinafore and sobbing bitterly. Yes, everybody's dead except for you and I. Then I thought there was some chance of water in this direction, so I heaved you on my shoulder and we tramped together. It didn't seem as though we've improved matters. There's an almighty chance for us. There's an almighty small chance for us right now. Do you mean that we're going to die too? asked the child, checking her sobs and raising her tear-stained face. I guess that's about the size of it. Why didn't you say so before, she said, laughing gleefully. You give me such fright. Why, of course, now, as, as we die, we'll be with Mother again. So the little girl seems quite happy that she, she knows when she's going to die, she'll be with her mom. Yes, yes, you will, dearie, you will. And you, too. I'll tell her how, how awfully good you've been. I bet she meets us at the door of heaven with a big pitcher of water and lots of bucket wheat cakes, hot and toasted on both sides like Bob and me was fond of. How long will it be first? I don't know. Not very long. The man's eyes were fixed upon the northern horizon. In the blue vault of heaven there appeared three little specks which increased in size every moment. So rapidly did they approach. They speedily resolved themselves into three large brown birds which circled over the heads of the two wanderers and then settled down upon some rocks which overlooked them. We all know what they are. They were buzzards, the vultures of the West, who's coming in for the forerunner of death. How do they know, you wonder? Hmm? Cocks and hens, cried the little girl, gleefully pointing at their ill-omened forms and clapping her hands to make them rise. Say, did God make this country? In course he did, said her companion. Rattle started by his unexpected question. He made the country down in Illinois. He made the, he made the Missouri... The little girl continued, I guess somebody else made the country in these parts. It's not nearly so well done. They forgot the water and they forgot the trees. <laughs> what would you think of offering a prayer, the man asked, differently. It ain't night yet, she answered. It don't matter. It ain't quite regular here, but he won't mind that, you bet. You say them ones that you used to say every night in the wagon as when we was on the plains. Why don't you say some yourself, the child asked with wandering eyes. I don't remember them, he answered. I ain't said none since I was half eight, half the height of that gun. I guess it's never too late. You say them out and I will stand by and come in on the courses. Then you'll need to kneel down and me too, she said, laying her shawl of rope for that purpose. You got to put your hands up like this. It makes you feel kind of good. It was a strange sight. Had to be anything but the budget to see it. Side by side in the narrow shawl knelt two wanderers, the little pranting child in a reckless, hardened adventure. Her chubby face and his haggard, angular visage were both turned up to the cloudless heavens and a heartfelt untreated to that dread being with whom they were face to face, while two voices, the one thin and clear and the other deep and harsh, united in the entreaty for mercy and forgiveness basically begging God to save their lives. 
The pair finished and resumed their seat in the shadow of the boulder until the child fell asleep, nestling on the broad breast of her protector. He watched over her slumber for some time, but nature proved too strong for him. For three days and three, three nights he allowed himself neither rest nor repose. Slowly the eyelids drooped over the tired eyes, and the head sank lower and lower upon the breast, until the man's grizzled beard was mixed with the golden tresses of his companion, and both slept in the same deep and dreamless assembler. So basically they're conked out. Can you imagine being in that situation? Now, we haven't had any clue yet who the narrator of this might be. It's one of our characters, we can be sure of that. Let's keep moving forward. Had the wanderer remained awake for another half hour, a strange sight would have met his eyes. Far away on the extreme verge of the alkali plain, there rose up a little spray of dust, very slight at first, and hard to be, hardly to be distinguished from the mist of the distance, but gradually grown higher and broader, until it formed a solid, well-defined cloud. The cloud continued to increase in size until it became evident that it could only be raised by a great multitude of moving creatures. In more fertile spots, the observer observ would have come to the conclusion that one of the great herds of bison, which was grazed upon the prairie land, was approaching him. This was obviously impossible in these arid wilds, as the roll of dust grew nearer the solitary bluff upon which the two castaways were reposing. The canvas-covered tilts of the wagons and the figures of armed horsemen began to show up through the haze, and the apparition revealed itself as being a great caravan upon its journey for the west. But what a caravan! When the head of it reached the base of the mountain, the rear was not visible yet on the horizon. Right across the enormous plain stretched a strangling array of wagons, carts, men on horses, and men on foot, Many women who staggered along under burdens and children who toddled beside the wagons or peeped out from under the white coverings. There was evidently no ordinary party of immigrants, rather some nomad people who had been compelled from stress of circumstances to seek themselves a new country. There rose through the clear air a confused clattering and rumbling of the great mass of humanity, with the creaking of wheels and the neighing of horses. Loud as it was, it was not sufficient to rouse the two tired wayfarers above them. So this long wagon train is going right below the, the little girl and the, and the old man, and they don't hear a darn thing. At the head of the column, there rose a score or more of grave, iron-faced men, clad in, in sober, homespun garments and armed with rifles. On reaching the base of the bluff, they halted and held a short council among themselves. The wells are to the right, my brother, said one, a hard-lipped, clean-shaven man with grizzly hair. To the right of the Sierra Blanca, so we'll reach the Rio Grande, said another. Fear not for water, cried a third. He who could draw it from the rocks will now abandon his own chosen people. Amen, amen, responded the whole party. They are about to resume their journey when one of the youngest and the keenest side uttered an exclamation and pointed up to the rugged crag above them. From its summit there flittered a little whiffs of pink showing up a hard bright against the grave rocks. At the sight there was a general reining of the horses and unslinging of guns, while a fresh horseman came galloping up to reinforce the vanguard. The word redskins was on every lip. There can't be any number of engines here, said the elderly man who appeared to be in command. We have passed the Pawnees and there are no other tribes until we cross the great mountains. 
Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson? asked one of the hand. Whoa. Let me repeat that. Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson? asked one of the hand. So there we go. We have John. Well, we assuming. I'm assuming it's John Stangerson. Or Joseph Stangerson. Sorry, not John. So chapter 8. We have a familiar character in the mix. Joseph Standerson. Now, does he seem to be one of them in charge? Well, he's definitely one of the three men that are looking up at the uh, the two the two or two weird weary travelers up there. So let's continue. Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson? Asked one of the hand, and I, in a cry of a dozen other voices, leave your horses alone. We will wait here. The elder answered. In a moment, the young fellows had dismounted, fastened their horses. And they were ascending to the prestigious slope which led up to the object which was very had excited their curiosity. So they're going to see what what is going on up there. They advanced rapidly and noiselessly with the confidence and the dexterity of practiced scouts. Not making a sound. The watchers from the plain below could see them fit from rock to rock until their figure stood out against the skyline. The young man who had first given the alarm was leading them. Suddenly his followers saw him throw up his hands as though overcome with astonishment and on joining him they were affected in the same way by the sight which met their eyes. On the little plateau which crowned the barren hill there stood a single giant boulder and against this boulder there lay a tall man, long bearded and hard features. but an excessive thinness, his placid face and regular bleeding showed that he was fast asleep. And beside him lay a little child with her round white arms encircling his brown singe neck and her golden hair resting upon the breast of his velveteen tunic. Her rosy lips were parted, showing a regular line of snow-white teeth within, and a playful smile played over her infantile features. <laughs> her plump little white legs, terminating in white socks and neat shoes with shiny buckles, offered a strange contrast to the long, shriveled members of her companion. Can you imagine just seeing that little sight right there? <laughs> On a ledge of the rock above the strange couple there stood three solemn buzzards <laughs> who, at the sight of the newcomers, uttered raucous screams of disappointment and flapped away suddenly. <laughs> so it didn't make their day too well, did they? Damn buzzards. The cries of the foul birds awoke the two sleepers who stared about them in bewilderment. The old man staggered to his feet and looked down upon the plain which he had been so desolate when when sleep had overtaken him, and which was now traversed by this enormous body of men and beasts. His face assumed an expression of incredulity as he gazed, and he passed his bony hand over his eyes. This is what they call delirium, I guess, he muttered. The child stood beside him, holding on to the skirt of his coat, and said nothing but looked all around him with a wandering and questioning gaze of childhood. The rescuing party were speedily able to convince the two castaways that their appearance was no delusion. One of them seized the little girl and horsed it up on his shoulder, while the two others supported her gaunt companion assisted them toward the wagons. 
My name is John Ferrer, the Wanderer explained. So now we have another character in the book here. John Ferrer. He was the protector of the little girl. So we like him. We'll call him a good guy. My name is John Ferrier, the Wanderer explained. Me and that little one there has all left the 21 of the party. The rest are all dead of thirst and hunger and away down in the south. Is she your child? asked someone. I guess she is now, the other cried defiantly. She's mine because I saved her. No man, will, no man will take her away from me. She's Lucifer Ferrier from this day on. Who are you, though? Okay, look at that. Isn't that kind of cool? He was the only one... So basically, he adopted that little kid, that little girl, right in the spot. And I bet if anybody tried to take away from her, take him, take her away from him, he would be uh, he would be met with a little bit of resistance right there, which is good. No man will take her away from me. She's Lucy Ferrier from this day on. Who are you, though? He continued glancing at curiosity at the stalwart, sunburned rescuers. This seems to be a powerful lot of you. Now upon 10,000, said one young man, we are persecuted children of God, the chosen angel of Marona. I never heard tell on him, said the wanderer. He appears to have chosen a fairer crowd of you. So we got 10,000 people there in this wagon train. That's huge. Does anybody know where I'm getting with this yet? I think we're all going to be in for a surprise. Let me just stop here. Like I did have to read a little bit ahead, a couple paragraphs. I'm just going to forewarn you that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle literally gave us a real good history lesson here. I got a funny feeling this is, a lot of it is fiction, but a lot of it is true, especially with some of the names that are coming up. Let's continue, but I think, I think everybody's going to be in for a little bit of a surprise where I'm going with this. Some of you might know who who this who this uh, who the people this ten thousand this ten thousand group of people are? You know, we're we're talking the early eighteen hundreds, probably around eighteen forty or somewhere around there, and uh, they're obviously running away from something. But, but let's just keep going. It's it's going to get very interesting here in a second. I never heard tell on him," said the wanderer. "He appears to have chosen a far crowd of you." Do not jest at that which which is sacred, said the other sternly. We are those who believe in those sacred writings drawn in Egyptian letters on plates of beaten gold, hieroglyphics, which are handed unto the holy Joseph Smith at Palmyra. All right, my uh, eager listeners. Joseph Smith. Does that ring a bell with anybody out there? I'm not going to say anything yet, but I will say this much. Joseph Smith is an actual person, and it's not fiction. This is an actual person. This part of the book is not fiction. We are coming from Nebu in the state of Illinois, and we found our temple where we founded our temple. We have come to seek refuge from the violent man and from the godless, even though in the heart of the desert. The name of Nebu 
evidently recall recollections is John Ferrer. So John Ferrer knows who the Nevu are. And I'm about to tell you right now who they are. I see, said John Ferrier. You are the Mormons. We are the Mormons, answered his companions in one with one voice. So, so these two people, Lucy and John, are literally rescued by 10,000 Mormons back in the 18, mid-1800s. We are the Mormons, answered his, answered his companions with one voice. And where are you going? We do not know. The hand of God is leading us under the person of our prophet. You must come before him. He shall say what is to be done with you. They had reached the base of the hill by this time and were surrounded by crowds of pilgrims, pale-faced, meek-looking women, strong, laughing children, and anxious, earnest-eyed men. Many were the cries of astonishment and of consumeration which arose from them when they perceived the youth of one of the strangers and the destitution of the other. Their escort did not halt, however, but pushed on, followed by a great crowd of Mormons, until they reached a wagon which was conspicuous for its great size and for the gaudiness and the smartness of its appearance. Six horses were yoked to it, whereas the others were furnished with two or at most four apiece. Beside the driver there sat a man who could not have been more than thirty years of age, but whose massive head and resolute expression marked him as a leader. He was reading a brown back volume, but as the crowd approached, he laid it aside and listened intently to the account of the episode. Then he turned to the two castaways. If we take you with us, he said in the solemn words, it can be only as believers in our own creed. We shall have no wolves in our fold. Better far that your bones should bleach in the wilderness than you should prove to be that little speck of decay which in time corrupts the whole fruit. As they say, one bad apple in the barrel ruins the whole barrel. Will you come with us on these terms? John Ferrer just looks, you know, at this fellow talking to him and goes, I guess I'll come with you on any old terms. No matter what you say, we were going to come along. He said with such emphasis that the grave elders could not restrain a smile. The leader alone had retained his stern and passive expression, so he wasn't finding anything funny at all. Take him, Brother Steinerson, he said. Give him food and drink, and the child likewise. Let it be your task to teach him our holy creed. We have delayed long enough. Forward on to Zion. On to Zion, cried a crowd of Mormons, and the words rippled down the long caravine, passing from mouth to mouth until they died away to a dull murmur in a far distance. With a cracking of whips and a creaking of wheels and great wagon got into motion, and soon the whole caravan, caravan was winding along once more. The elder, to whose care too waves had been committed, led them to his wagon, where a meal, where a meal was already waiting for them. You shall remain here, he said. In a few days you'll have recovered from your fatigues. In the meantime, remember now and forever you are of our religion. Brigham Young has said it, and he has spoken with the voice of Joseph Smith, which is the voice of God. So, 
It seems to me we're going to get a little history lesson here on the Mormon church. Now, I must say, in all the Sherlock Holmes movies I watched over the years and all the other stories that came across, I never knew that the Mormons had any anything to do with uh, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. I find it very fascinating, really. It's funny how the the people who make these stories and movies for us tend to eliminate some of the stuff that we were, that's really been written down. Obviously, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has traveled through America quite a bit to know so much about this stuff. And uh, how they tie this stuff to the uh, the story of the Mormons, Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. A little history for you. Joseph Smith is a leader of the, the founder of the Mormon church. And uh, Brigham, Brigham Young takes his place when Joseph Smith passes away. He's a second in command. This is all true stuff. These people actually existed. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle is uh, right on point with that. That's the end of the chapter there, folks. We'll stop it there. And just a quick review of the chapter. From what I understand, we don't know who the narrator is yet. I have to assume it's one of the characters from London. Which has to lead to be... Uh, we know it's not John, Joseph Stangerson. I got a funny feeling that the, the narrator of this part of the book is going to be our mystery killer, um, Jefferson Hope. But we need more. We need to do more reading to find out for sure on that. So that's the end of chapter eight. I hope I don't lose too many people on the uh, on the podcast because we're. Definitely veering off the path here and going into the Midwest America and uh, hooking up with the Mormon church. <laughs> Whoever would have thought. It's getting very interesting to say the least. I'll do a better in-depth in review of chapter 8 for next week to uh, see if we can wrap our minds around all this and where this thing is leading to. I just find it funny how Doyle incorporates all this with uh, with real facts in his book and you know these are real life characters he's talking these aren't fictional characters these are actual real living used to be real living people that were heading up the Mormon church it's, it's kind of fascinating really how he wove that into the story of a murder in London so one thing we know now for sure it's safe to say that we know Stangerson and Drebber are Mormons. And they got killed in London by probably another Mormon, I would have to say. So the three main characters out of London, the two guys that got killed, Stangerson and Drebber, and the murderer, Jefferson Hope, the three common things they have in common, they are... Mormons. I think we're going to be learning quite a bit more about the, the Mormon church here as we go along. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the reading. And I always like to apologize for any missteps I make during the reading. I'm trying to get better at it. You know, this is all new to me. So I appreciate your patience in that. 
and please share with everybody don't be shy and on other fronts I'm uh, working on getting my website up I should have a, a website going in another five days or so and then I'll try and see how I can get that link spread around for everybody to go to the website I'm also going to be looking at getting a page up on patreon I'm not sure if any of you know what that is patreon basically it's an and what I might do over there for the Patreon site is do video readings. So you can actually see me read the story. And you get to see all my little quirky facial expressions and things like that. But that, that one there is a, is a paying site. So if anybody goes over there, it'll be like a dollar a month, something like that. But that's going to be down the road quite a ways yet. So just giving you a heads up. I hope I don't lose any of you. And I like to gain a lot more people just... Because I really find this uh, fun and fascinating. And it's, it's funny how you look back at some of these books that were in the, written in the 1800s, how we uh, progress along through the years and we kind of drop off the stuff that we think is inappropriate and shouldn't be discussed. It's kind of cool, really. So, thanks again, everyone. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday. Bye for now.